the first day or two of a retreat can really be quite a challenging and hard day, that it can be quite important to perhaps speak about themes that are a little bit uplifting or gladdening in some way. So I am already going to apologize because that's not what (laughs) I'm doing this evening, or at least at first glance it won't look that way. I'd like to speak about the wisdom of disappointment. Sometime last year when there was a particular set of circumstances in my life that were somewhat challenging, I realized that on the tail end of them, I was kind of walking around with this difficult-to-identify, unsettled feeling. So as a good Buddhist, I (laughs) did indeed try to investigate what this strange, unsettled feeling was. And it became clear quite quickly that it was disappointment. And then it occurred to me that this is probably perhaps the most universal human emotion. I mean, when I say the word disappointment, I mean, is there anyone here who doesn't know what that feels like? So I I decided to explore it somewhat, and the talk this evening is something of the outcome of that exploration, or although I might say it's it's a work in progress. I think that one way of describing an enlightened heart is really a heart that can't be shattered by disappointment, a heart that has somehow deeply surrendered the insistence that life must be other than it is. And then that opens into a joyful heart that really can know the wisdom that lies in the willingness to be surprised and to know the capacity to meet each single day and each single moment with a very profound openness and receptivity. And then to know this joy, it, it means learning how to step out of this uncomfortable marriage of insistence and disappointment really involves learning to understand the nature of frustrated attachment. And in knowing that, to learn how to release the frustration, the despair, the anger that can be so much part of the picture, the landscape of disappointment. And that means learning to open to peace and to depth. Now, probably as long as we can remember, disappointment has been part of our lives because there is simply so much in life that is just not what we hoped for 
or not what we expected. Sometimes life brings us much less than we dreamt of or wished for or turns out very differently than we had expected or hoped. Now, we probably all remember the small and the large disappointments of our childhood, the shattering of some of our childhood mythologies, rejections by friends. We may have wished as a child for a different family, for more attention. We may, as we grow up, be disappointed that we perhaps didn't achieve the or win the levels of admiration or success that we may have hoped for. And we see that disappointment is, is often the beginning of many other processes within our hearts and minds. The disappointment can play itself out in frustration, in envy and jealousy, in blame of ourselves or others. And I often feel that when we really look and really explore some of these very difficult, sometimes quite stuck places in our heart where we're angry or we feel very hurt or we feel very betrayed or we feel very envious, it's almost like you, you lift up the blanket of some of those dynamics within ourselves. And again and again, underneath so many of those layers, we, we see this kernel of disappointment lying there. As we go through our lives, again and again, we, we are asked to learn certain lessons. As we go through our life and, and we see how many times our hopes or our expectations can be shattered and how our hearts can be shattered, it almost seems as if this dance or this marriage of insistence or expectation and disappointment can follow us almost wherever we go. You may have already met it today. You know, sometimes people tell me when they're, when they're in, the, in the city, they're dreaming about being in the country. They get here to the country, they're missing the dynamics of their busy city life. They tell me they imagine the bliss of retirement, and no sooner do they retire than they're missing. It wasn't what they hoped for. They're missing the stimulation of work. We can be alone and imagine the happiness of a companion or, you know, a, a big group of people, and in the, no sooner in the midst of a party, and we're imagining or re- Expect, you know, imagining the delights that solitude would bring. You know, some things in life just don't seem to last long enough. And other things seem to last way too long. And many times we have felt the ache of the much deeper disappointment when our relationships have somehow crumbled or we feel people have let us down, or we felt betrayed in some ways. And it seems that the more that you might give your heart to someone, 
the more vulnerability there is to that sense of disappointment, the deeper the love, the deeper the heartache of disappointment. Sometimes a person that we've loved or cared for turns out not to be the person who we imagined them to be or doesn't offer the love or the support that we'd hoped for them to offer. I think of coming here, you know, many people tell me in the midst of their busy and sometimes chaotic life, how they have these fond memories of being on retreat and imagine coming on retreat and all the peace and the calm and the serenity they're going to find. They've hardly sat down on their cushion and already planning departure. You know, how do I get out of this? You know, it's not here. It, it's, it's somewhere else. And, you know, we keep missing the lessons, don't we? That is what is so interesting, that peace is not certainly geographical. You know, and the heart that really can't be disappointed is not that, you know, it, it is not, it can't be found through just transferring our hopes and wishes from one situation or person to another. Even in being here, you know, the little small moments, you know, where we, you know, might go for lunch hoping for one thing is not there. We remembered a certain tea being here. And now suddenly they've stopped it. We discovered on this retreat, no more cookies for teachers. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine if we'd gone to that box in the yurt and opened it up, really counting on there being cookies, you know. (laughs) No more cookies for teachers. Perhaps the most difficult area of disappointment is the disappointment we can feel with ourselves. Might be just the disappointment of what we experience in our meditation. I should be doing this better. I should be a better meditator. I should be having a different kind of experience. But we see it too in our lives, you know, when we feel that we somehow betray inwardly that which we most deeply value and honor, when perhaps we speak harshly or unkindly to someone or withdraw affection or find ourselves being terribly judgmental. And all those moments when we feel that voice arising inwardly that I I should have done better, I should have been better should have been kinder. We can see it plays itself out sometimes in our practice, you know, that we might come into a retreat. And we may have done many retreats in the past. And, you know, we come into a retreat with a certain determination or resolve that, you know, this is the retreat when we're going to be the most audacious meditator of all time. You know, this is a retreat when we're going to let go of all the avoidance mechanisms. You know, we're not going to hang out in our room. We're you know, going to drop that 20th cup of tea in the day. And yet somehow, whether we are, we're doing it again, and we're caught up in the old habits. And I think sometimes it is a really major area of disappointment for us when we feel that our habitual tendencies or our habits are actually stronger than the intentions that we most deeply value 
and feel to be valuable. And we see the result of that disappointment and how it plays itself out in our practice and in our lives of not good enough, not perfect enough, not who we wish to be, not who we think we should be. In some ways, the story of disappointment can feel like it's almost too long a story to tell. And it can feel depressing on some ways. It can feel depressing. But I do actually have really do feel that the discomfort of disappointment is really such an important and potentially insightful discomfort to meet if we can truly understand what is happening. You know, this discomfort of disappointment is such a familiar companion in our life, it would be naive of us to overlook it. Because when we overlook it, I think one of the ways that disappointment plays itself out is that we find ourselves suspended in waiting and wishing for a better moment, a better mind, you know, a future moment a different mind, hoping for things that we don't have, including meditation experiences, but perhaps more lethally, hoping to be someone we believe ourselves not to be, or waiting to live a life that is yet to happen. Now, in my understanding, what I've, one of the things I've come to understand about disappointment is that every moment of disappointment is actually a glimpse of the first noble truth. And I'm not sure that there is any difference between disappointment and the first noble truth. That there is unsatisfactoriness in this life, unreliability, unpredictability, uncertainty. At times there is suffering and pain in this life. Seems to me that every moment of disappointment understood is also a glimpse of the second noble truth, that there is a cause of unease. There is a cause of pain. There is a cause of suffering and discontent. And in some ways, the very nature of holding to our attachments, holding to expectation, holding to our insistence that life should be a certain way, is almost, in a way, to invite chronic disappointment into our life. It's almost like volunteering for suffering. You know, life has to be a certain way. I'm really entrenched in that. Well, yes, I'll suffer, please. It's almost like volunteering for suffering. And the nature of holding on to insistence and and demand is almost to surrender the joy and the peace that is possible for us. And every moment of disappointment, I also feel, holds the seeds of the third noble truth within it. That there's a very real possibility of the end of suffering, the end of struggle, the end of disappointment in our life. There's a very real possibility of discovering a life that is really liberated from the pain of frustrated attachment, 
And as the Buddha taught, you know, the seeds of that third noble truth really lies within the first. That the seeds of freedom really lies within our willingness to understand the nature of suffering and its cause moment to moment. They're not separate. They are always interwoven and married together. There's a poem I'd like to read read you, which to me really illustrates this. It says, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. In my understanding, the path of liberation asks us not only to find the grace and the courage and the compassion to embrace the discomfort and at, very, at times the very deep pain of disappointment, but the path of liberation also asks us to find the wisdom in the midst of pain and disappointment. What I really see is disappointment is a place where every great mystic and every great yogi begins their journey. It's the root. Disappointment is, in a way, the root of every path of enlightenment. You know, Siddhartha certainly began his journey in disappointment. A disappointment his father had fiercely and desperately tried to shield him from, even going to these extreme lengths of removing fading flowers and leaves from trees in the palace garden, not wanting Siddhartha to feel any discomfort or to have any sense that life should be anything other than perfect. It's like, why do we imagine that it was so startling to Siddhartha when he went out of this constructed and engineered world of pleasure and perfection to meet life as it was. Why was it so startling for Siddhartha when he really was faced with someone who was aging, someone who was sick, someone who had died? Because he understood that his life was not as he'd been led to believe it should be and not how he imagined it should be. And when Siddhartha on that journey kept turning to his driver and saying, is this also going to happen to me? And his Siddhartha, would, his, his driver would say, yes. And in, in that moment of understanding that, in a way his, his, his kind of ingrained expectations, his ingrained hopes, his wishes were shattered, and in that moment, so too was his world. And leaving 
the palace for Siddhartha was not just a geographical departure, it was truly leaving the palace of his illusions, his insistence, his imaginings of how life should be. So disappointment for Siddhartha was really an agent of change. It was an agent of transformation. It was a turning point, as disappointment can be for us. If we can really find the willingness to meet it with understanding, to really understand the nature of this frustrated attachment that too often haunts our lives. First of all, I mean, it's useful to look at how we often do meet disappointment and how we explain disappointment to ourselves. One of the first ways we meet it, and I'm sure we'll all recognize this, we tell ourselves that life is unfair. It can be such a familiar mantra. We start using it the moment we find the words in our life when we're you know, a couple of years old and we keep using it. It's unfair. This shouldn't be happening. And that can seem to follow us. We don't seem to get what we want often enough. And when we don't get what we want, we blame our, We sometimes blame ourselves or we blame the world. Or we start striving. This is what sometimes happens in the face of disappointment. We start striving for an elusive perfection that just lies in another moment. Or we can sink into despair or apathy, feeling that we just don't want to take risks. We don't want to risk our hearts being broken. And so it can seem safer not to uh, endeavor, not to begin anything anew, not to be vulnerable, not to open to anyone. Sometimes we just get angry. There's a a wonderful story in the Zen tradition where, uh, I think it's a Christian tradition where uh, a student goes into retreat, and the, and the deal, the conditions for this retreat is it's a silent retreat. And every 10 years, they go to meet the teacher, and they're allowed to say two words. So the first 10 years goes by, and the student goes to meet the teacher, and the teacher says, how are you doing? And the student says, bed hard. The teacher says, you haven't got it. You may need to go back, practice some more. Another 10 years goes by in silence. In the next interview, the teacher says, well, how are you doing now? She says, food bad. <laughs> the teacher says, you still haven't got it, you know? Go back, practice some more. Another 10 years goes by in silence. The student comes to the teacher. The teacher says, now how are you doing? The student says, I quit. The teacher says, I'm not surprised. You've done nothing but complain for the last 30 years. <laughs> Sometimes, in the face of disappointment, we try actually to convince ourselves that actually we would be happy if we just transfer our attachments, our expectations, our wishes to attach themselves to somebody else, you know, or some other situation or some other goal, some other experience. 
I mean, more and more, we just feel disappointed when our map of life gets sabotaged by reality. It's the simple truth of it. Our map of life or our map of the moment has got sabotaged by reality. Even when things go amiss in our bodies, we can do this to ourselves. You know, this shouldn't be happening to me. I shouldn't be ill this way. I shouldn't have this pain. Our map of our life has been sabotaged by reality. And then we can begin to be so angry and averse and feel let down, and we see this tragic cycle of hope and wish, of struggle and pain going round and round, sometimes making us bitter and mistrustful. So what is the insight? What are the questions we really need to be asking? I mean, disappointment truly can be a black hole, or it truly can be a genuine turning point in our hearts. It truly can be the beginning of an unshakable equanimity and freedom. can make us bitter, or it can be a beginning of freedom to waking up to life's realities. And that peace of heart and that freedom, I think, really begins with our willingness to turn towards disappointment rather than to flee from it and to really look at what are we being asked to learn. Where is the insight? Where is the freedom? And within this most uncomfortable feeling, I mean, first we do see that disappointment and insistence seem to go hand in hand, that craving and frustration are two sides of the same impulse. Yet it's really hard for us to imagine a life that is not shaped by insistence and by hoping and by wishing. You know, we can see that from the moment that we wake up in the morning, we're hoping that our day is going to be a certain way. You know, we're hoping our body's going to feel a certain way. We're hoping our meditation's going to be a certain way. We're hoping the sun's going to shine. You know, we're hoping for a certain menu at lunchtime. We're hoping that our backache's going to disappear. We're hoping for an illuminating moment. And each of those moments is like inviting just a little piece of struggle into our hearts. Or those moments can also be very enlightening moments. And then most of us, if we're honest, we would acknowledge that we surely do want life to be a certain way. And in truth, some of these expectations come from a very deep place in our hearts, and they're deeply valid, and they inspire us. You know, the Buddha said, you know, don't give up your wish for enlightenment too soon. You know, don't give up your journey your, your sense of possibility too soon. All of us in this life, I'm sure, I'm sure it's a generalization, but I feel pretty sure that we wish for happiness, that we wish for love, we wish for connectedness, we, we wish for peace, we wish for justice. We, all of us probably wish for an end to alienation and struggle and to discover a depth of wisdom and compassion and 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 freedom within ourselves. And in truth, without those expectations, we would not be here. You know, without those, those aspirations, without those wishes, without that imagining, most of us would not arrive in this place at this time. 
And this, certainly in this path, it's not recommended to have no aspirations and to seek for nothing. What's more interesting is the very subtle ways that those aspirations and those wishes and those dreams start to turn into this kind of more level of insistence or demand or even a sense of entitlement. You know, that this is what I should be getting. This is what should be happening. What's more interesting is to see when these aspirations or these very valid expectations, what point do they begin to cause suffering? What point do they actually disconnect us from what actually is in this moment? Or even at what point do these aspirations that we have of ourselves, what, what point do they turn into a certain assumption or a measurement of our worth? At what point do these very valid aspirations become the forerunner of struggle and disappointment? At what point, actually, it's really interesting to see, do we invest so much identification or so much self into these aspirations that we start to think in terms of failure? And the failure, the sense of failure that can shatter our hearts. Now, Siddhartha's father did everything for him except provide a forum in which he could explore what it meant to let go and to be free. Certainly in my experience, life continues to provide us that forum. Can we first begin to embrace the discomfort of disappointment rather than jump away from it? And it's hard because I think we recognize that we have such a low tolerance for discomfort on any level. In fact, this is one of the illusions that keeps disappointment spinning because somehow we imagine that we should have a discomfort-free life. The Buddha had, uh, I think, a few words to say about this. (coughs) He said, did you ever see in this world a man or a woman, 80, 90, or 100 years old, frail, crooked as a gable roof, bent down, resting on crutches with tottery steps, infirm with youth long fled, broken teeth, gray and scanty hair or none, wrinkled with blotched limbs, and did the thought never come to you? You also cannot escape this. I think if we open our eyes just a little and see the way that our world is so punctuated with hurt and with loss and with, with grief and with sadness, and did the thought never come to us that this too will come to us? You know, Freud once said that neurosis is the refusal to suffer. I think that the Buddha would maybe say a little bit differently in saying the unwillingness to embrace suffering and pain with grace and compassion and understanding that this is the greatest of all suffering. 
that the most broken moments in our lives, that they are really the moments that ask us to pause and to reflect and to see more deeply and ask ourselves, how can we free ourselves from the suffering of disappointment? Now, we know that we can never totally free ourselves of hurt or sadness or grief. It is human. It is what it means to be alive, what it means to have a heart that can be connected and can feel. That is to experience, to open the door. There will be sadness. There will be loss. There will be grief. It means to be alive. And there is discomfort in life that certainly we can't avoid or escape from. But perhaps a deeper ache of disappointment is something different. This, I feel, might be an open door to freedom. If we can really find the willingness to stay with that discomfort, to be interested in it, is to take the first step of walking through that door. Maybe first we ask ourselves, what is it that we are wishing for? What is it that we are insisting on? What is it maybe that we were expecting? And how tightly were we holding to that insistence or those wishes or those hopes. And perhaps we can see that the degree of tightness of holding that we had to them is also how tightly we have bound ourselves to frustration and disappointment and despair. And, you know, perhaps we didn't even realize how much our happiness and well-being really relied upon our expectations and insistence being met until once more we find ourselves in that black hole of frustration and disappointment. Perhaps we didn't even realize how strongly we were holding on to that map of how life should be, how we should be, how other people should be, until once more that map is challenged. And that's really the discomfort we're asked to embrace, to see this marriage of holding to insistence and and despair, should and frustration marry to one another. In a way, I think the real art of this practice and the real art of this path lies in the cultivation of shouldlessness. Shouldlessness. Disappointment, in a way, is, is, is kind of like a small death. Because it's the death of a, a wish. Sometimes it's a death of a worldview. Sometimes it's a death of a self-view. Sometimes it's a death of the view that we've had about another person. And if we can just see that and maybe just relax into a little, that might be the beginning of our readiness to meet life, to meet ourselves just as we are, just as life is. Just really never certain, never sure, unpredictable, full of surprises, filled with change. You know, reliability, as I'm sure we have all learned, is just not the nature of this life. And yet somehow this is often what we do insist on. It's often even what we demand. A way, I think one of the ways of really learning to dissolve the discomfort of disappointment is really to meet it face to face, just to look it in the eye, to resist that, 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 that tendency to disconnect. You know, if we're, it's hot, we meet heat. 
If our back aches, we meet the aching back. If our mind is unruly, we meet the unruly mind. If a friendship seems to break down, we ask ourselves what friendship really means to us. Learning to turn towards, learning to befriend. This is the art of mindfulness. There is no cure for discomfort. It is part of being alive, but there is a cure for disappointment and fear and despair and aversion. By learning to hold our attachments and our insistence to how things should be just a little bit more lightly. I think it's so important to understand in this practice that the the way the Buddha taught, the way this teaching is framed is always in the context of verbs, process, nothing being fixed, not destinations, including non-attachment, including equanimity, including peace. They're not places. They are practices. They're practices. They're almost the application of insight moment to moment. In a way, that cultivation of equanimity, that cultivation of balance, is really born of learning not to try and fix anything in place at all, because that is what our should does, is it tries to fix something in place. It tries to fix us in place. It tries to fix another person in place. This is how you should be. Is how I should be. When we can allow those that kind of insistence and should, when we can hold it a little bit more lightly, give it a little bit less importance, what we really see is that we do not have to consent to all of our shoulds and insistence being the gatekeepers of our happiness and our peace. Because that is really what happens with should is we have delivered our peace, our happiness, our well-being into the hands of something that must happen. The gatekeeper of our happiness is truly our understanding, but it's a hard practice. When we see our life is so saturated with these expectations moment to moment, you know, when I teach in Switzerland, I teach in the center that's high up in the Alps, and it, it's probably the, one of the most extraordinary views you can ever imagine. And in fact, you know, people love to sit with their eyes open. It's so a little mixed blessing here because you, you sit and you're looking out this window and there's just this whole alpine range in front of you. The breath seems less interesting, I can tell you. Now, what is so interesting to me is, is recently teaching there this year and I was speaking with someone in an interview and they were really disappointed. And I, I said, what's so disappointed about it? She said, oh, I went for a walk today, you know. This is not nearly as beautiful as I remember it. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty sure these mountains actually haven't changed in a couple of million years, you know. <laughs> so this is not as beautiful as you remember it. Something to do with the eyes that are seeing it and not with the mountains. But what would it be like to approach our own practice, approach our own hearts in that way of shouldlessness, to approach every sitting and every every walking with a heart that simply doesn't know what to expect? And we can maybe 
sense the glimmer of freedom within that. You know, we're not expecting the repetition of the turmoil of the last sitting. We're not expecting the repetition of the peace of the last sitting. We just don't know what to expect. What would it be like to listen to our hearts, our bodies, our minds with a heart that just simply doesn't know? That's not expecting the resumption of anything. That is just not carrying all the history. Hmm? Even the history of the last moment. Because that is so much often our par- part of the parcel of our shoulds. Perhaps we discover a heart and a mind that feels a little freer, no longer so bound, so fixed by the shoulds. You know, Nagarjuna, one of the great Indian teachers, and said to no longer insist on being someone is to be free to be no one. But that has a lot of amplifications too. To no longer insist that another person be a certain way for us allows them to be who they are. To no longer insist that this moment be a certain way allows us to actually meet it as it is. One thing we should really know about our expectations and that we hold on, the map of our life, the map of ourselves and other people that we hold on to so, so strongly is that map only can ever take us to places that we've been before. It can't take us to something that is seen so freshly and so anew. You know, it's like, you know, when you watch the movie of the Titanic, did the ending surprise you? You know, I, watched, I knew how it was going to end. You know, and isn't it amazing that somehow we, you know, I mean, we wouldn't watch the movie in Titanic and say, gee, I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> but somehow we keep holding on to this sort of map that we have as if we're expecting a different ending. You know, or as if we're, we keep holding on to shoulds and insistence or expectations, expecting a different ending other than disappointment. Why would that be? It follows the same loop. Learning to let go of somehow that attachment to that map is is letting to go into a place of not knowing, which actually can initially be an uncomfortable place. But it's also the place of great mystery, of opening, of learning. Now, my understanding, deepening in meditation, has something to do with our ability and our willingness to bear the discomfort of disappointment and to learn the lessons that it offers us. It also seems to me that happiness and peace in our life actually also has a great deal to do with the same ability to bear discomfort because it's when we begin to practice It's when we begin to practice calmness. It's when we begin to practice equanimity. It's when we begin to reclaim our hearts. It's when we we no longer consent to anything really being, any event in the world really being the gatekeeper of our happiness. 
Now, when we begin to practice, often we imagine again and hope, you know, that our practice is going to be saturated with bliss and calm and peace and all these lovely things that we've heard about. And we think the way to this peace and this bliss and this calm, you know, is to somehow annihilate everything that makes us uncomfortable. You know, you, as I mentioned you know, earlier, we soon discover that our life, our hearts and minds have followed us onto the cushion, followed us onto the walking path. And so often we find ourselves in that place again saying, this shouldn't be happening. You know, it's not what I came on retreat for. This shouldn't be happening. How do we know something should be happening? It's because it's happening. It's that simple. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> you know, and peace has something to do with the point when we stop arguing with that. You know, as long as we're arguing with it, we're just constantly kind of volunteering for struggle. So with that <coughs> awareness, we discover that learning, you know, trying to subdue and annihilate is not the path. It's not the practice. We learn to make space for. We learn to make room for the unruly thoughts. And then they're not so unruly. We may learn to make room for the hardships of our lives. And then they're not so hard. We learn to make room for the pains in our body and we discover they can be embraced with compassion. (coughs) I think the wisdom of disappointment is that it teaches us again and again to let go of everything that we have attached, those shoulds too, to lighten the load a little bit of our demands and our insistence, to make room for all things rather than making struggle with all things. The wisdom of disappointment really teaches us to let go of the struggle of trying to find ground in that which is essentially groundless and to learn to rest, really, in the freedom that we can find in simply learning to be with what is. Discovering a heart that can't be shattered just have a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.